Amen. All right, so we are in miracles, so we'll jump right in. What is the most miraculous thing that has ever happened in your life? It is not the internet coming back on by Sparklight 45 minutes ago. Right, so, so oftentimes when you think about miracles, you think about things that you were just not privy to, right? Oh, I didn't know that happened. It's a miracle that we were at the same place at the same time. Or, you know, there's even, I think if you're a hockey fan, the miracle on ice, I believe, was in maybe the Olympics or something in the early 1980s. So uh, there, there's a lot of ways that we relate miracles, right? So we say, oh, it was a miracle. I got a great deal at the store. Or, uh, so I think in a lot of ways, and of course, we're very good at flippantly using many words, but in a lot of ways, I think we've done a disservice to the word miracle as well. And so uh, we are going to discuss what that looks like, and specifically we'll dive into the first miracle that Jesus performed uh, here tonight, uh, or that Jesus was a part of, <coughs> excuse me, but we will scratch the surface, only scratch the surface rather, uh, on specifically what that means. So this is not necessarily from an apologetic perspective. Uh, although there will be some apologetics involved, which is just the defense of your faith, uh, this will be more from a practical perspective of what Jesus did, uh, what it meant, and what it means for us uh, here in modern day. But, you know, oftentimes we experience things that are unexplained, things that uh, we don't have the knowledge to capacitate or the understanding to know why. Uh, for instance, as I was thinking about this, I thought about uh, a friend of mine who lives in Meridian, and he was, uh, he was scheduled to fly on September the 11th, 2001. And he had plane tickets on one of the planes that was set to fly that day and unfortunately did not land. It was one of the planes that crashed. He had tickets for that day. He now has those tickets, of course, as I speak of him today, which means he is alive. Uh, he now has those tickets framed in his living room, of course, to always remember the fact that that was the day that God spared my life, right? And so uh, there was the circumstances of events that led up to that, and long story short, he did not make it to the airport in time. He did not get on the plane. He is still here today. And so when you look at that situation, you would say, wow, that's a miracle that God spared him and used. He orchestrated, uh, <coughs> God orchestrated the series of events in order that that would take place. And, you know, certainly so. It is very uh, full of wonder, if you will. The Bible uses uh, wonder. It uses power in a lot of ways to describe miracles. And I would say uh, that is definitely a story that is full of wonder. Now, you know, oftentimes when we think about miracles, we also, we also think about angels, right? And so we think about uh, supernatural activity. Now, I will say this about Matt. Um, I'm captivated by that, but I'm terrified by it. Does that make sense, right? Because I think that, you know, if you pursue that, uh, that the reality of those things is really overwhelming, uh, you know, in Scripture, oftentimes we see the response of that. And so uh, it is my desire that God would do miraculous things in my life. However, 
I only want God to do miraculous things in my life when God is present in those moments. Amen? Right? Because that thing, I think that it can be very, uh, very overwhelming. And so as we think about miracles and uh, the way that it happens to people, I think often people attribute miracles simply to the unexplained. But the Bible does not speak of miracles this way. Like I said, the Bible often uses the word power or wonder to describe miracles. And specifically, most of the Scriptures use the word uh, miracle to indicate a sign. To indicate a sign. And so, as we study for the next few weeks what Jesus did and how Jesus interacted in the natural with the supernatural, what we will find out is that what he was communicating was a message. You see, signs are uh, intended to deliver messages. Right? Of course they are. I mean, there's signage everywhere up and down the road to tell you curves are coming or stop signs are coming or the speed limit or whatever the sign may be. And those are intended to communicate. You have billboards that are intended to communicate messages. Jesus' miracles, the miracles in which Jesus was a part of, they were intended to communicate something. Sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it may be more obscure. And so as we explore these miracles or signs that are performed by Jesus, we have to ask ourselves the question, why did he do that? What is the message? What is it that he is showing us? What is God communicating through this sign. Now, as I mentioned, you know, we're not really going to dive in very deep on apologetics, but you may say to yourself, well, um, I have a hard time believing miracles. Some people may would say that. Like, for instance, you say, uh, you know, somebody was, uh, Steve was mentioning miracles in the Old Testament. Well, obviously, there's a lot of miracles in the Old Testament, and specifically one that a lot of people say, are you sure that happened, is Jonah and the well, right? That, well, could you really live for three days in the belly of a, is there a fish big enough to do that? So, you know, all these questions. And so you'd say, well, I'm not really sure if I believe that. And, and as I began to think through this and, and study uh, as we were preparing, as I was preparing for tonight, um, you think about even other belief systems, okay? And some of the things that other belief systems believe. They believe what we would say are some very outlandish things, now, I'm not going to give any credit to any of those things, but, but they believe some very outlandish things, to which I would say to you, they say the same thing about us, right? That they would say, now, wait a minute, there was nothing, ex nihilo, God created the world out of nothing, there was nothing, and God made something out of it. Okay, um, and how did that work exactly? And so what science tries to do is science tries to explain the unnatural or the supernatural with the natural. And so what science does is says, can we repeat it? Can we do it again? If it's reproducible, then it's true. If it's not reproducible or explainable, then it can't be true, which that doesn't apply to Jesus. So what you have to do when we, when we go through these miracles is that you have, to, you have to be willing to open your mind up and especially your heart to say anything is possible with God. Now, if we, we can look at these miracles, we can go back to the Old Testament and go through the plagues, and you know, we can look at all the things that happened with Israel and all throughout history, and we can say, well, let's explain this. How is this possible? 
you know, how in the world did God create creation in six days and rest on the seventh? There has to be another explanation. Did he really do it in days? Was that 24? You know, so we can get into all of this about is it possible that God's able to do it? Did the Red Sea really part? Did, you know, so on and so forth. But what I'm challenging you to do is this, that if you are accepting, and I trust that you are because you're here, if you are accepting this as the inerrant Word of God, then as we endeavor on our journey to, this, to discover the miracles in which Jesus was a part of, that your heart would receive those things as truth. Amen? And so as we look at this tonight, I want to challenge you to approach the topic as, as such because what, what our hearts, and especially logic says, is that there are laws of nature. And you cannot break the laws of nature, right? There, there's things that absolutely have to be true. And as we think about the laws of nature, well, a lot of the laws of nature are superseded when miracles take place. We would all agree with that. They often defy the logic of science. You see, it is where God supersedes the law of nature to where you often discover a miracle has taken place. It is not that God suspended the laws of nature or science. He did not pause science or nature, rather, and then perform the act and then resume. No, he overrode that. Okay, and so when we look at specifically tonight in uh, the book of John, what we'll see is that he overrode what the law of nature would say is logical or uh, possible. Let me give you, this was the easiest illustration that I read that, was, that made it easy to understand. So what does that mean? Well, take, for instance, jumping off into a pool from a diving board, okay? What goes up must come down, right? Okay. Gravity. So no matter how thin or heavy you may be, you jump on a diving board and you go up, you're going down, right? That's how gravity works. You jump out of an airplane as a you know, parachute jumper or whatever. Whatever you may find yourself, if you trip, you are going to fall down, right? Gravity has a way, as a law of nature, of always pulling us to the earth. That's just how God made it to be. So if you jump off of a diving board, what does that mean you should do? That means that you should plummet straight down into where something stops you from doing that. But do you always touch the bottom of a pool if you jump off of a diving board? The answer is no. Why do you not do that? Because there is another law at work. See, you didn't know you were going to get some science tonight, did you? There's another law at work. The law of buoyancy, right? And so if you are, when you jump into the water, the law of buoyancy takes over the law of gravity. So it supersedes that, that law. Does that make sense? Now, I'm not explaining to you the miracle that we're about to explore tonight because there is no explanation besides God did it and it was awesome. Uh, but there are, what I'm showing you is that we can't just say hard and fast, this is the only way this can be because that is not the case. You see, all things are subordinate to Jesus, everything. So as we explore this tonight, the question is, and you're going to have to answer for yourself, how big is your God? What can he do? What can he not do? Is he able? Right? So let me just tell you for Matt, I believe God can do anything. I mean, look, if he can speak through a donkey in the Old Testament, he can do anything. 
right? And so for me, my belief system is this. You know, people say, oh, well, you know, can people do this or can God do this? Or is it possible for this to happen? And my response is always, God can do anything. Now, is it likely to happen? I Probably not. You know, you say, well, why doesn't God write, you know, salvation in the sky? To which I would respond, he could do that. Why doesn't God instantly rapture people who get saved? He could do that. Why doesn't God instantly transform you when you get saved? He could do that. He can do whatever he wants. My belief system is God can do whatever he wants. And so the question that you're going to have to answer is, well, how big is the God that I serve? Is he able? So I'm going to give you a couple technical definitions, and then we'll look at a functional definition. So a technical definition of a miracle is when the natural order is disrupted by the supernatural. When the natural order is disrupted by the supernatural. Now, I will say this. That is where you want to live all the time. That's where you want to live, in the supernatural. I mean, we long, our hearts long for the day that we will be face-to-face with Jesus. The psalmist writes in Psalm 17, 15, I will not be satisfied until I awake in your likeness. And so as we think about that, that is where we want to reside. So a miracle is where the natural order is disrupted by the supernatural. Uh, Believe it or not, hopefully you certainly believe it, in your own life, in your own heart, there's at least one miracle that took place. And that is that when, if you are a believer, that when you surrendered your life to Jesus, that you went from eternal death to eternal life. That is supernatural. So miracles, they often function as God-inspired revelation. So God is using them as signs to communicate a message or to bear witness to who He is. And so technically, it's where the supernatural disrupts the natural order. Functionally, a miracle is an event that is so unusual that the best explanation is that God intervened, is that simply God intervened. So that's the functional definition of a miracle. Now, you know, Different things take place, but in order for something to be called a miracle, the event should be the kind of occurrence in which we would look for God's direct intervention. God's direct intervention. I've told you this before, but you know, I was, I've always been taught if man, if you can explain it by man, man probably did it. If it cannot be explained by man, then God probably did it. And so miracles are not just these displays of God's ability or God's power, uh, but they also give us insight into His mission. So when you study the miracles of Jesus and when you look at the historical, the historical accuracy of who Jesus is and the, the miracles and the mission that He was on, what you'll find is uh, that the mission of Jesus was defined by the miracles of Jesus. Let me say that again. The mission of Jesus was defined by the miracles of Jesus. Matter of fact, when John the Baptist was arrested, uh, and remember, he's the front runner. He's the cousin of Jesus. He's six months older. And JB comes out and he says, hey, go and ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Or, what did he say, should we wait for someone else? And so he asked Jesus, and Jesus said, tell him all of the miracles. I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus said, tell him all the things that are taking place. So Jesus affirmed his deity through the miracles in which he performed. And so the, the power of Jesus was not just to display his, mirac- uh, his, uh, his miracles, were not just to display his power, rather, but it was to give insight into his mission. 
In Matthew chapter 4, the Bible says that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so we see that his fame spread throughout all Syria. They brought him to all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And he healed them, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, sat down, and his disciples came to him. So we see that in Matthew 4, the very beginning of the ministry that Matthew records for us, that Jesus is known for the miracles. It was his mission, Jesus' mission. And so as we look at this miracle that we'll pick up, it'll actually be the very first one that Jesus performed. We see that these miracles are extraordinary exceptions to the usual course of nature. Now, there's at least 35 miracles attributed to Jesus in the New Testament. And this is not on your handout, but, but they fall in specific categories. They, it has something to do with nature, it has something to do with healing, or it has something to do with exorcism. And so all of them bear witness to His authority. And so as we think about Jesus, we think about miracles from the virgin birth all the way to the resurrection— Jesus' life was marked by the supernatural. I mean, as a matter of fact, you know, many would argue that the greatest miracle in Jesus' life was the incarnation, right? And so as we think about the miracles of Jesus, His life was marked by the supernatural. And everything that took place, the, supernaturals were, the supernatural was a part of what happened. There were also outside influences, even people who did not believe in Jesus, who would comment on the nature of Jesus' miracles. Uh, there was Josephus, who is a very famous historian. He writes, at this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man. He was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And so here, Jesus, again, by external historical accounts, was known as someone who was capable of performing miracles. Now, as we think about miracles and as we start to get into uh, the book of John here, I want us to focus in on a principle. And that is that most of Jesus' miracles are very specific, and often they are very discreet. Most of Jesus' miracles are very specific, and they are often very discreet. In other words, you, you're not going to see Jesus using the terminology, watch this, and then him do something. Normally it has something to do with an individual that he is communicating to or through. And so Jesus was not into wowing crowds uh, with his supernatural abilities. And Jesus also doesn't want us to be in pursuit of being wowed by uh, supernatural abilities, if you will. You see, Jesus is not impressed with people who only believe because of miracles. He's not impressed with that. As a matter of fact, what did he tell Thomas? Thomas says, I won't believe unless I see the scars. And Jesus said, check them out. And then he said what? Blessed are those who believe and have not yet seen. That's you and me. And so he's saying specifically here that it is not the miracles that draw you to Jesus. It is Jesus that draws you to Jesus. And the miracles are just a bonus. 
You see, Jesus said in John 4, 48, he said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so Jesus is condemning them for not believing the things in which he has stated. He, he said in another place um, in Matthew 12, 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's likening those who seek after signs to adulterers. In other words, someone who reduces God to entertainment. And so we're not studying miracles to be entertained. Uh, and I want to be very specific of, uh, about that. Each of these signs that is performed by Jesus is an invitation to draw close to Jesus and to affirm his Messiahship. So tonight, what I hope this does for you, and certainly what it's done for me, is just to continue to remind me of the authority of who Jesus is and what he is capable of doing. And so we pick up in John. Uh, John's one of my favorite books. And the first 11 chapters of John, uh, actually chapters 2 through 12, are known often as the book of signs. And so we'll see some of that as we go throughout this study. And these signs that Jesus uh, is a part of are, again, to communicate a message. And that message is his glory. And so we pick up the story at the beginning of John chapter 2, after Jesus has just called his disciples. And so in John chapter 1, uh, John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so John, the disciple who wrote the book of John, and another disciple began to follow Jesus. Okay, and then, uh, then Simon uh, finds his brother, and then so on and so forth, and Nathaniel, and, and on down the line. And then all the disciples uh, are following Jesus. So that's John 1. So Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. Now we pick up in John 2, and here's what the Bible says. John writes this. On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we know who those people were, the disciples from John chapter 1. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now that's, I mean, that's cutting to the chase, right? I mean, there's a wedding and Mary just comes right up to Jesus, hey, they don't have any wine. So here's Cana is the setting, right? It's a small village in Galilee. Um, it's about eight or nine miles from Jesus' home in Nazareth. So, of course, that's where Mary, of course, is from as well. Uh, and are there in you know, Jesus' home, and so they're in Nazareth. And they're about eight or nine miles away in Cana. Now, Cana is larger than Nazareth, okay? Here's how we know this. Well, first of all, uh, we see in John chapter 1, it says, John uh, chapter 1, verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So the Can if you were from Cana, you looked at Nazareth and you thought, well, that's a tiny village and we're better than them. And so Cana, you know, here's Cana of Galilee, here's Nathanael saying, hey, can anything good come from there? Well, why is that significant? Well, if you turn to John 21, verse 2, you can mark that. John 21, 2 tells us where Nathanael's from, Cana of Galilee. And so here's Cana of Galilee hipster, Mr. Nathanael, who looks to Jesus, Son of God, and says, hey, uh, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. So here we find ourselves in this obscure little village, a little bit larger than Nazareth, and Jesus is at a wedding. 
So he's invited with his disciples. Now, weddings can be amazing times. You know, in seminary, they say there's two times that you cannot mess up preaching. A wedding and a funeral. At a wedding, no one's going to remember what you said. So if you say everything right or nothing right, no one cares. Now, you know, Pastor Tony's done a lot more weddings than me, and so, you know, he, he would attest to the fact that most of the time, any mistakes that are made along the way, no one even remembers. The same thing is true with the funeral, right? So, you know, it's a time that, you know, we, we want to be uh, careful about that. We want to be prepared with that. But the focus is not on the words, right? It's on celebrating the life of the person who's passed away. So there's a story uh, that I'd heard about a wedding one time. And uh, so there was a, a, it was a special moment. And so uh, the best man was asked to read a verse out of the Bible. And so the best man was given the verse. He said, the groom said, I want you to read 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18. And this is what it says. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You know, it's a pretty good verse for a wedding. And so uh, he says, hey, this is what I want you to read. So he gave him the Bible and said, read 1 John four eighteen. So the wedding commences, and so everybody's going. So uh, the pastor's preaching the wedding, and he says, okay, uh, the groom has asked for the best man to read a verse. Well, the best man, not very versed in the Bible, takes the Bible and doesn't recognize the fact that John and 1 John are two separate books. So he turns to the book of John, chapter 4 and verse 18, which reads, For you have had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. <laughs> right? It matters, right? So it does matter what you say. It does matter what you say, right? And so weddings can be... Very, very important. And, you know, it's, it's the same as true, you know, uh, an opportunity at funerals that you get an opportunity to celebrate uh, either the marriage of people at a wedding or the life of someone who's passing away. But your words matter. And so Jesus' words are very, very important here. And so Jesus is at the wedding. All of a sudden, we have a problem. We got a big problem. Culturally, this was a huge issue. Your reputation is on the line here. And so weddings in their day typically lasted a week. Now, I don't know if I could survive a week at a wedding. That's a long time. And so weddings normally lasted a week. It was a big community event. Everybody would come. Everybody would celebrate. And towards the end of the community, and this is, this is interesting if you've never connected this, towards the end of the ceremony, the young, there would be young women who are unmarried, okay, that would escort the wedding party as though they were royalty to their final wedding destination. So write down uh, Matthew chapter 25. You, you can go back and read it. But write down Matthew 25. Knowing now what you know, Matthew 25 will make perfect sense to you. You see, Matthew 25 verse 1 says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. That's what they're doing, the celebration of them uh, ushering into the wedding uh, to their final destination. And so that parable may give you a little more insight now uh, from that knowledge. And so here is Jesus and Mary and the disciples. They're all at this wedding venue. Mary obviously uh, knows a lot about what's going on, okay? 
Uh, she is a relative of the bride or groom. Somehow, some way, she's very connected to who is getting married. She was invited from her nearby village of Nazareth. And so somehow she has inside knowledge. Now, if you're invited to a wedding and you're not kin to who's getting married and they run out of food, what do you do? You just go get in your car and leave, right? You just go get something to eat or whatever. It's not a big issue to you. Mary felt like she had some responsibility in this. Now, again, we don't necessarily know how or who or why, uh, but Mary had some personal uh, responsibility she felt. And so the family's reputation is now on the line. They have run out of wine. They're not able to fulfill the obligation. And now we pick up with the miracle, okay? You've heard this before, but hopefully from a different perspective tonight. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Very specific. Mary, now think about what's happening here. Mary is talking to Jesus the Son of God. Now, you would say, oh, now wait a minute. Uh, Jesus hasn't performed any miracles yet. Very true. However, how old is Jesus? He's about 30 right now, right? <clears throat> so Mary has spent a long time with Jesus. Not only do we know what she said, we also know what is not said, and that is, where is Joseph? He's not there. Nowhere in the narrative do we read anything about Joseph. It is believed that somehow, some way, Joseph has passed away. Of course, Joseph is not mentioned at the crucifixion just three years later. And, and, and at the crucifixion, what does Jesus tell John the disciple? To care for his mother. Why would she need someone to care for her if Joseph was alive, right? And so it's assumed that Joseph is no longer living. And so Mary is talking to Jesus. Now, Jesus is her son, but he's also the Son of God. And Mary knows that there's not, this is not normal, okay? This is not just your every average run-of-the-mill kid in Nazareth or growing up in Galilee. This is Jesus. She raised Jesus. Mary knew Jesus' tendencies. She knew a lot about his abilities. She knew what Jesus was accustomed to doing. And she knew what she was accustomed to doing when she had a problem. She took things to Jesus, right? She knew that Jesus was able. Now, we may look at that and say, well, why in the world would Jesus be involved in that? We're talking about his mom here, right? And she knew everything about him. As a matter of fact, she knew something about Jesus before Jesus was actually incarnated, before he was born. In, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, the Bible says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And then what did he tell her? You're about to have the Son of God. Right? So she knew even before he was born, there's something different about this son. And so Mary goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, they have no wine. And so we see this lesson here, that she went to Jesus and she involved him in the situation. You see, in order for Jesus to act in your life and in mine, we have to involve Jesus in our life. Now, I know that may sound like common sense, but look, here's the deal. How often have we been guilty of encountering problems and situations in which we said, I'm going to try to handle this? Maybe subconsciously you didn't cut Jesus out, you just didn't involve him in 
right? And so Mary is in this situation, and it really, Jesus is a carpenter, all right? He's not a wine salesman. He doesn't have a cellar with all, you know, a bunch of storage. He's a carpenter, and yet she goes to him with this problem. And so the lesson for us as we begin to explore this miracle is what is happening in our life and which we need to go first and directly to Jesus about? What do we need to go to Jesus about? You see, you have to welcome Jesus into the areas of your life that you're not prepared for. Right? So many times what religion tells me is that I've got to be prepared to encounter Jesus. Right? That I've got to be situated and I've got to have my life right and I've got to have everything in order before I approach Jesus. But what Mary did is she went to Jesus with a problem that was not related to Jesus but that she knew Jesus could fix. She welcomed him into the chaos. You see, what we've got to be willing to do is to bring Jesus into the areas of our life that are full of mistakes. Somebody made a mistake. They miscalculated the attendance. They didn't prepare enough for the people that would be there. And the reality is you and I live in that moment almost every day of our lives. I'm not prepared for what's going to happen tomorrow. All right, I just know that if it comes and I'm in it, that I've got to be prepared to encounter it. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is if I allow Jesus to lead me through that. So I've got to welcome Jesus into the areas of my life to which there are mistakes You know, so many times in our life, we want to play to our strengths. But can I challenge us tonight that we would welcome Jesus into the areas of our weaknesses, that we would allow him to shore up the places that we are the weakest. That is where you will be attacked by the enemy, is where you are the weakest. So can I challenge us tonight to welcome Jesus into the mistakes of your life? Here's what's not going to happen. We, we don't see Jesus snooping around and asking, hey, is everything ready? Everybody good? Did y'all have enough? Do you need me to do anything? We don't see that. That's not what happened here. Mary went to Jesus with the problem. You see, Jesus is not going to barge into the party of your life and try to fix everything. Where you're running on fumes, where no one else notices, he's not going to run in and fix everything. You have to invite him. You have to notify Jesus that you're incapable of fixing the problem, and you acknowledge, or as I said earlier, you affirm his Messiahship, right? That he is, in fact, the Lord of creation, that he is, in fact, the Son of God, that you've got to welcome him into those areas of your life if you expect him to do something supernatural in your life. You have to welcome him into the situation. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you, but for Mary, it involved a wedding, and it involved a lack of planning and supplies. And so Jesus, in John chapter 2, verse 4, he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, on the surface, you know, it, 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 what was that, uh, that uh, sitcom years ago when, where he said, what you talking about, Willis, whatever that sitcom was? Uh, I'm really, really young, by the way. Um, and uh, so it, it made me think about that. You know, what, what are you talking, you know, like you know, the, the verbiage there that we read in the English. Well, it's, it's miscommunicated in the English. On the surface, it seems very disrespectful, right? You know, woman, you know, what, what has this got to do with me? Well, Jesus, uh, this was really the cultural equivalent 
of us saying ma'am or woman. He, he refers to her as woman uh, at the crucifixion as well. So it's not as we would perceive it to be. Uh, you see, Jesus, he addressed her, and then he began to disclose the mission in which he was called to. He said, my hour has not yet come. Now, in, in just the very next verse, you know, so I'll go ahead and tell you. In the very next verse, he's going to act, okay? And so you would say, if you're reading this in chronology, you would say, my hour's not yet come, and boom, Jesus does something. To which I don't have an explanation for that. My explanation is this, is that his time is not my time, and my time is not his time. And so I think what happened in that moment is that there was humanity and there was deity present. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, the humanity of Jesus is to linger a little longer, right? That he knows that once I start this miracle business, I've disclosed myself to the disciples. Once I reveal myself to the public, my, my path to the crucifixion has begun. And so, again, just Matt's opinion, but I think that this, my hour has not yet come, is an acknowledgement of the deity in which he represents, that there is a mission, Luke 19, 10, I've come to seek and save those who are lost, that, that he's acknowledging the deity of who he is. But I personally think there's some, there's some humanity in there, that he's reminiscing about the fact that, you know, dad's gone. It's just me and mom. And I've really enjoyed these 30 years. But he knows the mission is at hand. You see, Jesus began to disclose the mission. The mission, the hour, of course, was that he, were, he is to uh, succumb to, to surrender himself to death on a cross. Once he began to reveal his true identity, the clock would begin to tick. Then in verse 5, he says in verse 4, my hour has not yet come. In verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, that's good theology right there, right? I mean, we could just say, here's what you should do, whatever he tells you. And then you'd be good, right? You don't need any more. I don't need any more explanation. Just do whatever he says. Well, here's the deal. Mary knew this. Mary knew that the only way that problems find their resolution is in obedience. She knew that there was a problem. She knew that the only way it would be solved is if they did what Jesus told them to do. So what I would say to you is if you welcome Jesus into your problems, if you welcome Jesus into your mistakes, you must be willing to do what he tells you to do. You broke it, he can fix it, but you've got to be willing to be obedient. So Mary knew that these, this resolution was only going to take place through obedience. And so in verse 6, there were six, the Bible says now there were six water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So what does Jesus do? Here's what Jesus does. Jesus intimately engages our personal difficulties regardless of their size. Jesus intimately engages. Now, easily so, and maybe even in our own human hearts, justifiably so, Jesus could have left it at verse 4. doesn't have anything to do with me. And that would make sense to us. We would say, well, he was busy. It's really a wedding, not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. But that's not what he does. He engaged in the difficulty in which Mary found herself. You see, Jesus knew that he had a greater mission at hand and people running out of wine at a wedding was seemingly the least impactful thing that he could have done. Right? 
That's what logic says. But yet, he chose to act. You see, there was quite a bit of symbolism in what he did. Now, remember, there's six uh, jars, right? There's stone jars, the Bible specifically tells us. These pots were made of stone. They were religious ritual symbols. They were not made of clay because they believed ritualistically uh, or ceremonially uh, that the clay could carry contamination. So they had to be specific. Now, this is where legalism comes in. So they say, well, it's got to be a specific type, and it can only hold water, and it's got to be used to ceremonially, uh, ceremonially clean people. And so uh, basically what this was is they kept water uh, to be cleansed for certain uh, eating and, and certain types of rituals. So essentially, it was full of dirty water. All right, they would wash people's feet. They would put the rag back in, get more water, and wash people's feet. They would rinse it off. I mean, it was, it was not something that you certainly would want to drink. And so these jars represent the filth of humanity. You see, nothing was allowed to be put in these jars except for water. And Jesus specifically goes to these water pots. Now, he easily... Now, I mean, just think through this, all right? There's six jars. There's six pots. The Bible says that they hold 20 to 30 gallons apiece. So there's up to 180 gallons of water in these stone jars. Now, that's a big jar, all right? So they're not hauling those, those jars on their back. So what does that mean? That means that they're bringing water and pouring it into those jars, right? They're going to the well, getting water, bringing it, pouring into those jars. So what does that mean? That means that there are other means or other jars of water available, Okay? But that's not what Jesus uses. Jesus says, I want to use those six pots. Now, he could have easily said, pour them out. Let's clean them. Let's bring fresh water in. But that's not what he did either. He said, let's use those jars. And so what Jesus did is he took what was in the jar and he made it better. Does that sound familiar? That he takes what's in our jar the mistakes, the brokenness, the dirtiness, the filth of the world, and he makes it better. And this is what he said in verse 7, fill the jars with water. And so they came and they filled them up to the brim. It's believed that they filled the equivalent of 907 bottles of wine. That's a lot. That's a lot. All right, and so here he brings them uh, they bring the water, and so, you know, they're, they're filled to the brim now. There's 180 gallons now of fresh wine, or water, rather, that's about to be wine. And so, Jesus does what? What does he say? He tells them, fill the jars with water. He involved them in the miracle. Now, here's what he could have done. Like all the magicians do today, right? If you see them on TV or whatever, what do they say? All right, everybody stand back. You can't get close. You can't see all the magic and the movement or a trick of hands or whatever, sleight of hand that I'm doing. That is not what Jesus did. He involved the servants, and we'll see this again in a second. He involved the servants in the miracle. Now, imagine you're part of the service crew, right? It's a wedding. Some of you have served in, in weddings before. And so it's a wedding. And Jesus said, hey, fill those dirty purification pots with water. You're like, uh, are, you, are you sure about that? Right? Now, Mary said, do whatever he says. So imagine now that you're the servant, okay? And you're going out to the well, and you're having a conversation. You're saying, this doesn't make any sense. 
I mean, does he know what we use these for? And they're going back and forth and they're getting these water pots and they're filling it up. And the Bible says that he filled it all the way to the top. Now, they don't know what's about to happen, right? Can I say that in my life and in your life, I don't know what's about to happen. But the only way I get to where God wants me to be, the only way that I'm able to be involved in the supernatural is what? Is just being obedient, right? So let me rewind us to Sunday morning, okay? Let me say this, and we're going to rewind. Sometimes the miracle comes in obedience before understanding. Or as Pastor Tony said Sunday morning, understanding follows obedience, right? So sometimes we've got to say, I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm just doing what he told me. He said to put water in these pots. And so that's what I'm doing, right? And so what we're saying is, God, I believe in you and I trust you. And if if filling a water pot is what you want me to do, I'm in. That's what I'll do. Understanding follows obedience. And so he said to them in verse 8, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now look, we don't know exactly you know, I mean, we're getting the best that we've got from John here. We're, we, he doesn't say Jesus knelt down. He doesn't say Jesus, uh, Jesus looked to heaven. Sometimes he did that in his miracles. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say he waved his hands over. It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say any of that. What it says is he told him to fill it to the top, and then he said, draw it out and take it to the master of the feast. So somewhere in between the obedience of pouring and the obedience of serving, the water turned into wine. That's amazing, all right? And so it says, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants, we'll come back to this, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So here's the question. Who changed the water into wine? Jesus did. The servants didn't do it. Mary didn't do it. The, the, uh, the master of the feast didn't do it. Jesus did it. How did Jesus do that? Supernaturally. Again, the Bible doesn't even say He waved his hands. He lifted his hands to heaven. It doesn't say anything. Supernaturally, God transformed, Jesus transformed the water into wine. What role did anyone else play in the transformation? None. Zero. Let me ask you a question. Does this look familiar? Who changed you from death to life? Jesus did. How did he do that? Supernaturally. What what role did anyone else play in that transformation? None. Is that not the same thing as for us? Here's what Jesus did. He took the filth. He took all the wear and tear of our lives that we accumulate, and he transformed it. He transformed it. All the times that you played in the mud barefooted, he cleaned it and transformed it. I think it's interesting in verse 9, it is those who are serving, not those who are receiving who are aware of Jesus' miracles. Isn't that fascinating? Look what it says. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now, they, the, those who received the wine, they didn't know where it came from. They didn't know what happened behind the scenes. But those who served knew. So here's the principle. 
When you are most available to Jesus, he is most apparent to you. That's good. That's good right there. When you are most available to Jesus, he is most apparent to you. And so what we've got to do is we've got to involve ourselves in situations to where we can welcome Jesus in and that we're available so that he becomes more apparent in our lives. Amen? So in verse 11, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This sign, this message was the beginning of God displaying his glory. Now, remember, let's rewind to the very beginning. What does John tell us as he opens the chapter? Well, that's what he says. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. When did this happen? On the third day. Hmm. Interesting. This all happened on the third day. It was the third day that he did what? Well, what does verse 11 say? We just read it. It says that he manifested his glory. Fascinating. Because three years later, what does Jesus do on the third day? He manifests his glory. Fascinating. Fascinating. You see, for us, we would look at this story and we can relate. We would say, you know, my life is a lot like that wedding, that things don't often go as planned. And we, like Mary, oftentimes run to Jesus asking him to do something in our fiascos. We have these expectations that are often our expectations, and they're expectations that we impose on Jesus to meet our desired outcomes. And what happens is, this causes us often to speed through life. And like those who receive the wine, miss the places where Jesus has already abundantly provided. Abundantly. 180 gallons abundant. As we'll get to the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 later on, abundantly, right? Abundantly. And so I want to give you just a few takeaways. These are not really connected, but it just, you know, it's interesting how they all play together as we look at this and say, all right, well, what does that mean for me? How can I, how can I look at this miracle at Cana and apply that to my life? What do I take away from it? Well, a couple things. Number one is don't miss the moments because of the mission. There's a lot of people that are at their wedding that have no idea what happened. And so often, I can tell you in my own life, maybe it's true for some of you, is that I get focused on the mission. I've got something I've got to accomplish. I've got to raise my kids. I've got to perform at my job. I've got to, you know, save for retirement. You know, so on. I've got all these things that I've got to do. And I've got this mission. And, you know, if I can just, if I can just do this, if I can just accomplish this. And sometimes, confession, I miss some moments because I'm really focused on the mission. Now, Jesus is at a wedding. So clearly he had time. He was intentional with his time, but he had time to invest in things that were important to people, moments that mattered. So don't let the mission cause you to miss the moment. Number two, most people, as we, if we look at this, you know, most people at the wedding didn't know, so the moment was, was big. Number two, well, what was the expectation? Well, our expectations often cause us to miss his invitation. 
the invitation to be involved in the supernatural. Right? The invitation to be involved in the supernatural. And sometimes our expectations cause us to miss that. Now, I don't know this to be true. However, I imagine, I don't know about likely, but certainly highly possible, that there were some servants that wanted to quit or did quit that day. Right? Oh, there's no way I'm serving dirty water to these people. I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. Right? Imagine a catering business that Jesus shows up and says, hey, you should serve the toilet water to them, and I'll transform it before they drink it. To which you would say, I will lose my company if I do that. Right? So I can imagine, I'm not saying that it's pot, you know, that they in fact did, but it's certainly likely that some of the servants were like, I'm out. I'm not doing that. And so their expectation of what was possible prevented them from receiving the invitation to be a part of the supernatural. So what is it in our lives that we would say that I've imposed my expectations on that have caused me or prevented me from being invited into the supernatural? Our expectations can cause us to miss. Number three, the activity of Jesus in our lives is always abundant and edifying. Listen, everybody at that wedding was better off because they, they had been there. I mean, look at the guy at the end. What does he say? Man, everybody always saves the best for last. I mean, the, the best is first, and you save the best for last. This is amazing, right? And so everybody that was there, not think about the bride and groom. What a story to tell. Yeah, well, how was your wedding? Oh, it was good, you know. Well, how was your wedding? Oh, it was good. Oh, yeah, well, Jesus came to mind, and he filled 180 gallons worth of water into wine. I mean, what a story. And that's how you and I in our life, we talk about our story a lot around here. That's what happens in our life. When the supernatural intercedes your life, that's when your story gets better. That's when your story is what it's supposed to be. Jesus intersected this wedding, and their story was better. And not only were they edified through it, but it was in abundance. What, what does Paul say in Ephesians 3.20? I believe that, that, he is a, that he supplies abundantly beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. Every one of us could testify to the, that being true for us. Of what, I mean, just look around. It's air conditioned and we're sitting in padded pews, right? And we're freely choosing to do this with no oppression. And so for us, we would look at this and say, well, it is true that Jesus always abundantly edifies those in which he is involved with. Number four, Jesus, not only is he abundantly involved, but he is just as involved with the everyday as he is with eternity. So look, this, this following Jesus thing is not a ticket to eternity. It's a relationship for the present. Right? And so for, for us that we would say, hey, well, Jesus is not concerned with this. Well, hang a time out. If he's concerned with water and wine at a wedding in Cana in the middle of nowhere, I dare say he's probably interested in what's going on in your life. Right? That's one of the fascinating things to me about Brazil is that God chooses to work in the most obscure places on the planet. The planet. So if he can work in places that no one even knows exist, he can work in your life. And so he's just as involved in that. And so what, how, do we, how do we interact with that? We welcome him. We invite him into the everyday. 
into the simple, into the average, into our commute, into our lunch breaks, into our simple conversations, into our social gatherings. We invite him. I know you should already know this, but we invite him into those things. And then last but not least, God most often acts in ways that manifest his glory, not just his power. So it would be easy for Jesus to do anything. I mean, look at the beginning of uh, Jesus' journey on earth. We see uh, of his ministry that the devil, you know, took him up and tempted him in, in, in two or three different ways, in three different ways. And so Jesus said, nope, I'm not doing that, right? He resisted the, the temptations. He resisted the, the enemy. And it would be easy for him to display his glory that he could, you know, cause the earth to multiply tomorrow. And then, you know, half of us live on one planet and half live on another. Or he could cause the sun to be, you know, like Tony, Pastor Tony said Sunday, it could be, you know, another color. He could do whatever he wanted. He could do any of those things. But he's not interested. He's not solely interested in displaying his power because his power is limitless. He's interested in displaying his glory. And how is his glory displayed? When the obscurity becomes supernatural. When the obscure becomes supernatural. And so for you, you may, you may say, nobody knows me. My life's in shambles. No one cares about me. I'm in the middle of nowhere. Nothing ever goes right. Whatever you want to say, fill in the blank with that. Woe is me. Things are bad. No one recognizes. No one acknowledges. Whatever those things may be in which I would say, that sounds like a phenomenal place for the supernatural to happen. That Jesus, the glory of God, is present in those obscure places. And so welcome him in. Bring him into the mistakes. Show him the broken china and, you know, the chair that's taped on the leg. And, you know, don't step on that part of the floor because you may fall through to the ground. Bring him into those areas and say, Jesus, this is the best I got. But I'm with you, and I know that you can do anything because where you are, the supernatural is available, and I am willing to do whatever you want me to do. I'm going to be obedient in that even if it doesn't make sense because I know that you always, uh, that you always provide abundantly and you edify anything that you are a part of. Isn't that exciting? I mean, what a great story that has a lot to do with water into wine but has nothing to do with water into wine. Amen? And the same is for us. Whatever you may see is probably just a part of the greater picture in which God is working in your life. And so be encouraged that if he can take dirty feet water and make it good, he can do anything with your life. Amen.